Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Hiawatha again. My name's Chris. Uh, if you're visiting for the first time, welcome again to our church. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we have a really uh, loaded and exciting uh, passage to, of Scripture to look at today. It's going to dive right in. Uh, we're in a series in the book of 1 Thessalonians. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, that'd be great. But a lot of the passages are on screen as they usually are, so feel free to follow along there or in that sermon insert in the folders you got when you walked in as well. That'd be great, as, uh, great too. Uh, but today, we're going to look at uh, verses 5 to 10 in chapter 1 in the book of 1 Thessalonians. It's the, the first of two books to this church in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul wrote around 51, 52 A.D., um, uh, roughly. In fact, the two books are written six months apart, so they're uh, quite close to each other. But today's uh, topic, as it comes up here in the passage, is uh, suffering with joy, how the gospel of Jesus Christ compels us to suffer, but not just to suffer but to suffer with joy. And it's really, it's kind of a classic oxymoron, at least from a worldly standpoint, but such an important thing for us as Christians to deal with. If we just want to be faithful Bible readers in general, this theme comes up so much narratively and just prepositionally. It's just stated like it is today a lot, but also narrative. It's kind of both today, actually, too, because the Thessalonians are doing this well uh, narratively, and so we're kind of gleaning from that as well, but also just stated a lot too. In fact, it, it's, it goes so far, the Bible does, to say that this is one of the biggest marks of being a Holy Spirit-filled Christian is, oh, thank you so much. <laughs> I forgot it. I don't usually do that, but I need it. Dry mouth. Anyway, uh, suffering with joy. And so doing that well, again, suffering, but having joy, something, it's not a category the world really has. And so Christians, the Bible says, are able to do this with Christ as as our example. Uh, we're talking about imitating Christ in this regard and Paul and his team here in a second, but it is, and there are lots of ways to imitate Christ. Lots of, lots of um, good biblical true concepts can come to mind when we hear that phrase, but, but this ultimate one, I'll, I'll come to this later, uh, is uh, to, to suffer with joy, the joy of the Holy Spirit uh, in, our, in our hearts. And so let's read uh, chapter 1, verses 5 to 10. To begin, and again, follow along on screen, and we'll, uh, I'll give some background here to the book, just a couple of things, if you're brand new to this, for a little bit of geographical and, uh, and, con and cultural context here in just a second. But first of all, verse 5, Paul speaking, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So in context, if you were here last week, Paul begins a lot of his letters like this in the New Testament where he just starts to thank God for them. Uh, whether it's a verse or a paragraph or in this book's case, a chapter's worth actually of thanks. He keeps coming back to this theme. He's very thankful for what God's up to in this church. Again, whether it's their salvation or the good works that are coming from them. Uh, I think we talked about that last week, how really it's impossible to be saved. If you're in Christian, if you read the Bible and hear from God in this capacity, and Jesus himself says this in his ministry, how it's, it's not possible for human beings to be saved from their sins. And so when that happens, we rejoice. 
we thank God because we can't thank any person for doing an impossible thing. God can do the impossible. God can make things that aren't. He can make them be like he did at creation when nothing existed, but he spoke with the word and things just were all of a sudden. So he does that when he saves a person too. He creates goodness and righteousness and salvation out of no inherent, there's a, a void inside us of no good whatsoever. God sees it, but through his son, when he dies on the cross for our sins, he creates something beautiful. And so when, when we operate out of that idea of the impossibility of salvation, all we can do, like Paul, this is why Paul's so just thankful when he writes to his churches. He knows that only God has allowed salvation to exist, just like creation exists alone because God willed it, you know, and that's why Jesus says we have to be born again. We're born into this world physically, not by will, our will, we just are in the same way as the moving of the Spirit. We're, we're led to Christ through a church, through a missionary, an evangelist, our scriptures as we read them, and the Spirit's behind that as he leads us to himself. So again, thanksgiving. So we talked about that, and then t- uh, today, this week, and also some other things last week, but today he just continues that. He's thankful for the Thessalonians' salvation, but their faith as well, which he says, is going forth everywhere. And so Macedonia and Achaia are regions in Greece, uh, ancient Greece, Roman provinces, though, of the day, Greco-Roman provinces, and, and they're going forth to the greater regions. So it would be like, you know, Minneapolis's uh, faith uh, was going forth to uh, northern Minnesota and the Dakotas and, and Iowa and Missouri, and uh, the, the region was hearing about the type of, what God was doing here and the type of faith that we were preaching and living out. And those are the two things that we're going to frame today's sermon around because he says here, this is how their faith is going forward. In word, so they're preaching, they're evangelizing, they're sharing about what God is doing in the world through his son, Jesus Christ, but also in demonstrated acts of repentance, patience, and joy, even in suffering. And so uh, remember that geographically, Thessalonica was a port city of the day, which meant it was a strategic place to plant a church. It was a strategic thing for God to say to Paul, which he does in Acts 17. Paul was going to go this way, but God appears to Paul in a dream, in a vision of the night, it says, and says, go to Macedonia, or actually, basically, he sees a man from Macedonia saying, come help us. And so Paul was going to go here, but instead he, he felt like God was leading him that way to go to Macedonia, Thessalonica, and Philippi, and other cities, preach the gospel, and so the church was established. But because of its strategic geographical location, it was a great place to, for, for God, essentially, to plant a church because in a port city, it meant that people were transient. Uh, that they came in to trade and buy and sell and travel for a few days and then leave again. And this is true for cities today in a lot of ways. Minneapolis, St. Paul is very transient. We have people here all the time coming from out of states and leaving again for work elsewhere, and it's just awesome but terrible at the same time. Right, we get to know somebody, they're gone, but but it's a great city-based ministry is actually uh, a really strategic thing. And that's not a knock on rural at all. It's just the reality that cities influence rural, not the other way around. You just don't see the rural areas influencing major metropolitan areas. Cities have uh, that controlling power and influence. And so that's why you see Paul only go to cities. And when he goes to cities to preach, he considers an area reached after the main city in that area is reached. He's like, that's in one sense kind of done. Now, that's not done done, but it's in his eyes, kind of a reached area when there's an established church in the main uh, metropolitan area of, of the region. So this is why, I say this for context, but also so you know, this is why their faith is becoming so famous because 
people are coming in, they're meeting these Christians, they're meeting the church, they're maybe being a part of it for a little bit of time, and then they're going about their business and their ways and going back to their homes, and they're bringing stories of the gospel. As Christians and non-Christians, probably, they're just getting glimpses here of their, of their preaching, their, the content, the words, but also their lifestyles of suffering deeply, being rejected for the faith, being sick. Uh, ministry itself is hard for them. It just it, it causes us, it calls us, it confronts us to get outside ourselves constantly, which is a suffering kind of thing, but they're happy. They're doing it with joy. And, and sometimes those are different. I should have qualified that before. Joy doesn't necessarily mean happiness. Happiness is great. It's just fleeting. Uh, joy is deep-seated contentment, uh, where you can be very sad, very depressed, uh, but also having this, from a Christian standpoint, a deep-seated joy in knowing that God is bigger than all of our problems. And, and so that, that can look like happiness, or it can just look like stability in the midst of, of chaos or everything in between, uh, or both and. So, um, all right, so what I want to do then is break today's sermon down, like I said, into these two things. So look at uh, how was their faith going forward and, and to see this in, as an example for us individually, but especially as, as a community here as a church. So in word, how was it going forth? And then how, how was it going forth in demonstrated acts of repentance, patience, but especially this idea of suffering with joy? What does that mean? How do we get that? Uh, I want to give you guys a category for understanding that, if that's kind of your, your lot right now in life, and if it isn't now, it probably has or it will be. Every, we all suffer deeply as Christians in various capacities. But also, um, if you are to understand how to think and how to operate, and not just to suffer, but to have joy, because those things aren't, like, given, right? That we would suffer but have, the, have joy. As Christians, a lot of times we suffer but with the wrong mindset. And the suffering might be a really good God-given thing, like we're being persecuted for the faith or we're just receiving what God's lot is for our life in a suffering kind of way, but our mindset's really terrible about it. And we're not happy. We're not joyful uh, through it. And so to talk about both isn't necessarily a given together. It is kind of that big, fat oxymoron that the scriptures really addresses while well, it's possible with the gospel. And so we'll, we'll talk about that. And then how that serves as a really effective evangelistic model. Not just our preaching, but behind it, a lifestyle of suffering with joy that points to Christ, embodies him, and gives just authenticity to our faith that he really is real. So we'll come back to that and more. So first, uh, we'll talk about word. Spend a little bit of time here, most, mostly with the latter today because it's kind of a unique thing going on in, in, chapter, in chapter one. Uh, but first, uh, the word. So verse eight says, not only, Paul says, has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you. So we have to define word of the Lord. What is that? It's the gospel. Christ is the word, or he's the Lord. In this, in this case, he's both. He, he's the Christ of the word. He's the Christ of, uh, who's called the Lord here as well. And so they're proclaiming, as we see in verse 10, he gets more specific. They're proclaiming the Christ who was raised from the dead and who delivers us from the wrath to come. The Christ who saves us from serving idols to serve the living and true God, the only God who is, who is alive and he delivers us from that wrath that is uh, kind of present, but it's future tense here. So judgment, that's, that's coming. And the Thessalonians, again, this is part of what's going forth to outside areas and, and the region. The Thessalonians are hearing this. They're repenting or turning from their old way to embrace the fact that God has saved them through Jesus Christ, saved them from their sins, believing in it, casting themselves upon it, and waiting patiently and eagerly for him to come back. 
uh, to, to save those who are eagerly, eagerly waiting for him. So there's a lot to say about all that, uh, but I wanted to at least read it here a couple of times so you know exactly what the content of their message was. And there's more to say about the gospel than that, but you see exactly what was intriguing people uh, regionally. You see exactly what was intriguing the Thessalonians to embrace this at all and to be intrigued by it and to cling to it and to wrap their whole life around it. It was this kind of, of gospel. But what I really want to focus on today, because it's unique uh, to... to uh, Thessalonians 1 and even kind of 1 through 5 here, and so it's kind of our chance to do it, is look at this idea of wrath and why that's so important to link up with, uh, with the cross. The idea of God's wrath, kind of present but also the future tense here, coming wrath and how Jesus saves us from, from that wrath. Really important to understand this biblically, but I think in our culture, I don't know where all you guys are coming from spiritually or uh, you know, Christianity-wise or church-wise in your past, but today, in some corners of the church, it can be a not very popular perspective on what happened on the cross due to its close relationship with the doctrine of hell and judgments, which are uncomfortable doctrines, kind of sub-doctrines to that idea, but also the propensity that we have to think that we're really good, lovable people. The, the idea of God being full of wrath and the idea that at our core we're really good, lovable people just do not mix. And so we have to jettison one of those to, uh, to allow the Bible to make sense. And a lot of times we jettison wrath and to the place of other gospels that are not really gospels. But we, what we have to jettison, you know, in light of the scriptures is that at our core we're not really lovable, favorable to God people. We are not good. Jesus says all the time in the gospels, you are evil. <laughs> just calls people out on that. You know, at, at your core... You are, uh, you are evil. We are evil. So the, the gist of it is this, though, as we kind of, again, hone in on this one aspect of what's happening on the cross. The gist of it is this. In our sin, we're not just dirty, needing cleansing. We are an offense to God, needing reconciliation. So in our sin, we, we are not just dirty, needing cleansing. We are an offense to God, needing reconciliation. In other words, like I said before, we're not favorable to him. We are his enemy. We, we are like uh, individuals in a kingdom who have taken up arms against the king of the universe, staging a coup against him, and his wrath justly awaits us. It's the most frightening news ever. I mean, to understand, really understand and feel that especially, and we can understand that, but to feel that, most frightening news ever, that the God of the universe has been staged against by us, that we're not just doing a couple bad things here and there, but we are actually his enemy. We have enmity, the Bible says, between us and him. We are not in his kingdom. Just we don't, We're not born into it. We are on the outside of the walls. We are trying to climb the walls with our weapons and, and stage that coup and overthrow him. We're committing high treason, essentially, is what it, uh, what it amounts to. But the gospel... The good news, that's the bad news. The, the good news, gospel means good news, how it speaks into that, how it confronts it, in spite of all of it, you could say, is that God is love. God is love. Not loving, the Bible, sa uh, the Bible says more than that. He actually is the essence of love. He, he, in, and in that, he sends his son, Jesus, to suffer on a cross for us. And the Bible calls this uh, a couple, lots of things, but in a few places, a propitiatory sacrifice. So 1 John 4.10 says, in this is love. This is what love is. Not that we have loved God, because we haven't, but that he loved us. And this is how he loved us. He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
Now, propitious means favorable. So basically what it's, he's saying here is we're not favorable to God in our sin, but, but Christ was a type of sacrifice that made us propitious or favorable to God. So the cross comes in between not being okay with God uh, to being at odds with him to now being a part of his family, to having no barrier in between, to being in his kingdom, to being a, a diner at his dinner table, uh, to being one he fights for. That's what the cross makes possible because he's, he's absorbing our punishment. He's dying as a, as a substitute, a sacrifice of atonement. So it's another way to read propitiation if you, if you want to plug in the idea of, of wrath-deterring sacrifice. God has wrath against his enemies, sinners, but Christ comes in and, and, and changes things. He absorbs that so that now it's not pointed at us anymore. So you see how he's not just cleansing us? And he is. Praise God that he is. It's one of the big words given to what happened on the cross. He's, he's washing us with his blood. He's, he's clothing us with his righteousness like we sang before. He's forgiving us our sin. But in all of that, he, he's, he's, he's transferring us from one camp to another, to the, the camp of the enemies of God, to the camp of his family. But his justice must be done. So Christ becomes this wrath-deterring sacrifice. Wrath against sin is a good thing in, in the eyes of God and should be in our eyes as well. God hates sin and justice is a good thing, so justice has to be done, but God is love. And this is why both things come together perfectly on the cross. He's essentially jumping in front of a bullet for us, a bullet we deserve. He's saying, I'll take the electric chair, I'll take the firing squad, I'll take the blow and the torture and the punishment for these people, this is, the, this is how God is working in the world. He's sending his son, and the son's willingly wanting to do this, Jesus is, and he's, he's absorbing it. So, so understand both those things. If, you, if, if this is new to you, and if you want to really understand the cross better, having, having the categories of, of wrath and love, deep wrath against sin, uh, against sinners, but deep, incredible love for sinners, if you have those two things together, you will understand the cross. And, and I guarantee logically and theologically, if you don't have both those kind of handled, not that we have to get them perfectly, but if you, have those two, if you don't have those two things handled, the cross will be a stumbling block. It won't really make sense. Be kind of a, well, Jesus was doing all these great things. I don't even know why he had to die exactly this way, but he did, but we're only going to focus over here. It's just not going to make a lot of sense. But if you have the idea of wrath, well, this explains uh, for, in a, for one example, why it was so vicious, why it was so visceral, why it was so bloody, why it was so torturous, why it was so evil and unjust, why it was, what, why it was so dark, why the sun went out, why an earthquake happened. You know, this explains all of that, but also how God could be so incredibly loving as well because, it, again, in this is love that God became a wrath deterring sacrifice for you. That's love. And if, you, if, if that doesn't make sense, maybe the problem is that we don't have a good definition of love. Maybe the Bible has a better one. So don't, don't, don't approach the scriptures and say this is actually a good thing, kind of across the board theologically. Understand that if there is a God who is who he says he is in the scriptures, and, and if he's ultimately love but also just and, and all of that, but if there's just a God, the God of the scriptures out there, assume that you will not understand everything about him. Just presuppose that there will be things that will make you uncomfortable about him. There will be definitions you have for certain things in, in your reality that will need changing and tweaking. This may be one of them. In this is love, 
that God came to deter his own wrath for you, to, to save you, to pluck you up and out uh, from underneath punishment and the debt of sin and to, and to give you the promise of future hope. So for Christians then, verse 10 here again is in 1 Thessalonians 1, is talking about this in a future sense too. So wrath is coming. The, the wrath of God is coming against sinners. Jesus will return and judge the living and the dead. There is a hell. It's eternal. There is judgment. But for the church, wrath in a way has already come. It's come on Jesus. He's that propitiation. He's absorbed it. He's diverted it away from us. And so what's all that's left for the church is even though wrath is coming, we know on that last day it won't be pointed at us because it's been absorbed by our Savior and, and, and taken on by the one who's jumped in front of that bullet for us. So now there's no more fear. There's only joy and freedom and reconciliation with uh, God, who himself has alone done this, right? It's a beautiful thing about the gospel, too, is the, you can't stare at the cross and think the point is try harder. The point is we can't get in, so that's what God had to do to save us. He had to become a human being to die in our place, and, and it's by grace we're saved then. It's by that gift, not by our works of righteousness uh, alone. So, in fact, I was thinking uh, that this past week, actually it might have even been yesterday, I was forgetting the exact day, but my, some of you guys know I have a son, Emmett, who's six, and I don't even know what prompted this, maybe Alicia, you were helping him with something, but he drew out these um, kind of storyboard of, the, of Noah's Ark and the flood, and so he, uh, he drew out the I think the open ark, and then there are animals and people going in, and, and then the flood, and then at the, and after the flood, they were getting off the boat onto the new earth. And so, <laughs> I just, it was really cool. It was, I have never seen him. Well, he's done stuff like that, but not so elaborate. It was really interesting, but took the opportunity to explain to him. This is how we teach, um, well, us as adults, if we were preaching that passage, but our kids too, who... Um, have been in this more recently than, than us up here. We haven't been in Genesis for a little while, but this is how we teach it uh, because this is how Christ connects it. And, and that is, and what I did to Emmett is point at the ark and say basically the ark in this story is Christ ahead of time. Because in this story, God promises wrath. You guys don't know this story. In the very beginning, sin was welling up before God and he promised to wipe everyone off the planet. And so God is saying, he's, he's speaking to Noah about this and he's identifying him as a righteous man, not because he's good, but because he trusts in him. So he's a sinner in his family, so eight people and all these animals. He says, build a boat because wrath is coming. Judgment is coming. And, and so he builds this boat graciously. He gives him all the instructions and Noah follows them down to a T and it houses and the flood comes. Um, but what Christ does in his ministry after all this occurs, is he connects his ministry and, and him, just himself with the story. In Matthew 24, it says, uh, this is actually Jesus' words, I changed the last thing, this, Jesus, not son of man, but it says, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the son of man. As were the days of Noah, that's going to happen again, Jesus is saying. So wrath is coming again, as it says here, and just like God promised it there, it was a smaller picture of that, but Jesus is saying, I am essentially the way out from that. I'm the propitiation. I'm going, I'm going to die for you. I'm going to be the new ark. Get on me. Enter on the ark of my grace. And though wrath will come like the flood came, uh, it will not overwhelm you. You will pass through it and you will get off that boat into the new earth and new creation and live forever with me. It's the same story. It's meant to be that. These are things that Christ is helping us 
This isn't a random, oh, it's kind of cool how they're sort of lining up. Jesus gives us the permission, the obligation to read the story this way. It is ultimately about him ahead of time. And so this, this is why, going back to Thessalonians, this has to be a part of our gospel. In this, you guys, we are prophets. We have the same message Noah did. It's going to rain. You know, in that day, if you know the story, it hadn't rained yet. God was watering the earth from the ground. And so what is rain and flood? Come on, there's hardly water anywhere. And people were laughing at him. People were going on, eating, drinking, getting married, going to work, playing games with their kids, and ever, just going about a normal day, but rejecting Noah's message. And all of a sudden, drip, 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 flood. They're all dead. The wrath of God comes, but they're not on the ark of Christ. It's the same with us. You will be hated for the message. When you talk about wrath, it, even to some who are so-called Christians or in the church are offended by the idea of wrath, it will not sit well with many, but it is coming. This is the message that's making this church famous regionally. It's intriguing. It's uncomfortable. It's what if it's true? Then I'm toast. Tell me about the ark, essentially. Tell me about the Christ. I want to get on. Uh, and many are, who are also rejecting. But, but Jesus is saying here, and he, I'm just reading one verse of this context, as we're prophets, as we herald Christ as the gift of God for all of us to be saved from his own wrath, as he, di- as he dies for our sins, as coming wrath is, is happening, um, we will also be sufferers for that message, just like Noah, just like Noah was. But biblically, historically, again, this has to be a part of our our gospel. It's, it's not good news otherwise. It's just kind of a, it's a story. Maybe it's interesting, powerful in some ways, but unless we get that weightiness of our sin and, God, and God's wrath against it, that we've all gone our own way, like sheep without a shepherd, we've all rejected him, uh, we won't want the love, the love piece, and see the cross for what it really is. Okay, so that's the word side. And there's more to say about that, but that's partly, again, what's going forth regionally uh, to, to other cities and to other parts of Macedonia and beyond. Uh, but now this other piece, switching gears, is what, the question here is, what kind of lifestyle is undergirding this message? So this is what they're preaching and what people are hearing about, kind of second and third person, second and third hand. What type of lifestyle is being um, witnessed and becoming famous throughout the region uh, here. And v- verse 6 tells us, Paul says, and you became imitators of us, Paul and his team, Silas and, and uh, Timothy, and he, he had teams around him when he would plant these churches, and of the Lord. You became imitators of us and of Jesus. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So I want to start with a question, and, and I kind of posed this earlier, so um, just bear with me. Try not to think ahead <laughs> too far, but it's fine if you do. But if I, if I were to pose this uh, whole thing this way, like what do you think about when you think about imitating Jesus? What would you say? What's the first thing that comes to mind when you hear the phrase imitating Jesus Christ? What do you picture? Now, there's not just necessarily one answer to that biblically, but here... And in the New Testament, what's, being, what's linked with that idea of imitating Jesus alone is suffering. Suffering with joy. Imitating Jesus Christ's suffering. Maybe not necessarily the first thing you think about, right? So 
more than simply doing good in the world, which is maybe where some of you went there, just kind of being, you know, good like he was. More than that, the scriptures talk actually in a much more cross-centered manner. The church is to imitate Jesus's sufferings. Because note the four here. You became imitators of Paul and team who were suffering and of Jesus. Four, because you received the gospel in much affliction. They were being afflicted. This is how they're imitating Jesus Christ. And they're doing it not just as sufferers, but sufferers with joy. They're, they're, they have a, a deep-seated contentment and a joy-filled nature as they, as they do this. So they're imitating, in other words, the fact that Jesus had to be rejected by men and die on a cross, had to suffer to bring us new life. This is um, something that we say a lot here at the church to not just explain the passage we're on, but help you understand how to read the Bible. And that is that God is a master at this, but he does it all the time. He loves to work explicitly and implicitly. He loves to say things clearly and show them less clearly, but with the same degree of intentionality. So in this case, he loves to speak and declare, loves for churches to do this, but Christ, of course, the ultimate example of this, say that we're evil and the only way to be saved is by God's grace and, and to die on a cross for our sins and to pronounce it like a herald would to a good king. But he also values the church living this out and becoming a drama of it, essentially, to the world. So much so that the church, when it suffers, is doing so in Christ. It's doing, it's doing so in a way that it resembles Christ and his suffering. So that, so that people are hearing, but they're also seeing. Which is really great, isn't it? I mean, maybe that's kind of like, well, you knew that, or I guess, or I'll just take that for what, for, what you're, for what it's worth. But it's really cool that God, I think, is tapping into different aspects of our humanity. You know, because some of you are more, I want to hear, and some of you are more, like, I want to see. All of us, though, can do both. And so I think God is, he's wanting to really be comprehensive in how the gospel comes to us. He wants us to hear, primarily. But he also wants us to see the drama of what he did for us on the cross demonstrated. And one of the ways it's going to happen is by his church being a suffering community. As they bring life to other people, just like Christ suffered to bring life to people ultimately. You guys see the connection there? These are the connections that Paul's making here and the Bible makes tirelessly uh, elsewhere. Christ is the point of all of it. So we're not just talking about, well, suffering happens we're giving a category for it. We're, we're trying to help make sense of it, that Christ himself is alive in you, the suffering Christ, and there, therefore you will share in it. He will want you and your life and us as a, as a community to demonstrate, not just speak these truths to people and to each other and to yourself as you see them happening. So Christ is the, think of him as the center of the solar system, the sun. He's the point of all of it. Everything else orbits around. He's the first fruits, the Bible says, of the church's sufferings. He's why the church suffers. Matthew 10, 22 says, uh, Jesus speaking, you'll be hated by everyone because of me. He's promising that. Uh, Hebrews 12 down here says, uh, links Jesus' sufferings in joy to the churches by saying, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for, here's the joy idea, the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Here's the call. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted when you suffer. See the connection? Consider him. Look to him who suffered for you so that when you suffer for others, you're not surprised. 
You're not thinking, well, that's completely out of left field. You expect it. It makes sense. Because Christ wants the drama of his suffering to be lived out in the church. He did not die that you will never suffer. He died so that you will suffer with him. Ultimately, you won't eternally. Suffering does have an expiration date, but it's not yet. Your suffering matters. It, it, it's not, God is in control. He has a, a point and plan and a purpose, a purpose for it. So again, part of this, these are a little bit less clear, but part of it is that imitation idea. This is why, uh, going back to these things, you see Jesus say on the cross, as he's dying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You see that proceed in Acts 7.60 when Stephen's being stoned to death for preaching the God, as he's preaching the gospel. Kind of a rough draw there for a sermon, but it's his last one, obviously. He's dying, being stoned to death. And it says in, in Acts 7, and falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Same thing Jesus said. Now, again, guys, you can do two things with that. One, coincidence, or two, divine intentionality. Is this just randomness, or does God want his people to live out, whether it's words or whether it's, um, the, again, the drama of this, whether it's implicit, he wants his people to relive out what happened on the cross. Great exercise, uh, if, if you'd like to sometime, is read the Gospel of Luke and Acts together, which are two New Testament books, because Luke wrote both of them. It's kind of a book one, book two thing, and so it all the more clearly connects what Jesus is doing with what happens with the, the first Christians, the, the apostles. And just note how many times the people in Acts mirror what Jesus said, mirror the miracles he did, mirror his message, but take it to a higher level. Note that. It's, it's fascinating, and, and we're meant to see these things. So our experiences make sense in light of his, including, including sufferings. Two weeks ago, I showed you this chart, too, just to re, uh, recap this again, if you weren't here, actually. Uh, in Acts 17, which tells us the history of how Paul planted the church in Thessalonica, the believers there and, and Paul himself in different ways, how their experience linked up with Jesus's, how it resembled his. Uh, it, they both spoke truth. They, they were received by many but rejected, the Jews especially. Their words were twisted, and in both cases, they're dragged away by a mob and brought before authorities. The point is here to see Jesus' passion, his sufferings, are happening over again through the church. Not in the exact same way, but in a way that reflects it. He's saying this is happening so that your sermons are backed up by a dramatized lifestyle of suffering in different ways, whether it's persecution or something else. In Philippians 3, Paul calls it sharing in Christ's sufferings. He wants to share in Christ's suffering so that he'll share in Christ's resurrection as well, which is another deal, but I'll just let that hang there. But what I, what I want you guys to see here, and we'll kind of slightly shift gears uh, with this because it's easy to pigeonhole this into just the idea of being persecuted for the faith, suffering, which is a huge piece to it. A lot of you presently are. You know, we have people in our church who've been denied promotions for the sake of just being a Christian or just lots of ridicule in the workplace for being believers and, and all kinds of stuff like that. So a lot of you I know are going through this, and if or you have or you will. That's a big piece to it, but it's not just that. Think about being persecuted for the faith as one slice of the pie chart. But there's lots of other ways that Christians can and should suffer 
as a reflection of, of Christ's suffering. So uh, with that in mind, as we start to ask the question then, with ourselves really in mind here, what does it mean to apply this idea as the Thessalonians are imitating Christ and Paul, how can we imitate them? As we start to ask this idea, how can we apply it to our lives? Being an example in joyful suffering, I think you can break it down into two, uh, two categories. The one that we didn't talk about much yet, which is active suffering, and the one we've kind of been alluding to, which is passive. So I'll, I'll get to that. First is active suffering. So in other words, things you can control. There's an aspect to the, your, your daily sufferings as Christians that you can actually make choices on and control the degree to which you do it. So 2 Timothy 2.3 says, suffer, it's a command, an imperative. Suffer like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Like a soldier would suffer for the people he's fighting for, so be that in, in the context of the church and, and in the context of ministry. Uh, suffer like a good soldier. And then Philippians 2 gets more specific. That's kind of broad still, but one way that the idea of active suffering comes out is in uh, things like this, Philippians 2, 3, I'm chopping that thing up just for length here, but uh, 3, 6, and 8, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Good luck, but do it. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. This mind is yours, here's the good news, Christ himself is in you to do this, so don't fret or worry. He himself will enable these types of things to be in as much as you're thinking about him dying for you, him suffering for you, him putting you first. In as much as we think about that as Christians, it will allow us to then kind of dramatize it or relive it. Relive. It'll free us up to do it. So this mind is yours in, in Christ Jesus who became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So again, Christ is first and foremost. He put you and me first by dying on a cross, even that way. And the call here is live that way. Not to be saved by how well you do it, but because it's first been done for you. Make choices on a daily basis to put other people first. That, that, that's painful, right? To do, that's going to cost you something. It's not going to be comfortable. That's suffering, right? Basically what suffering is, is denying yourself comfort or just not being in a state of comfort. That's, that's what's being uh, hit on here. So, so 2 Timothy 2, 3 and Philippians 2, uh, get at this at Colossians 3 also, I don't have it on screen, but it says put to death the old self. Uh, so one example of this would be, um, so we talked about some here in Philippians 2, but also just choosing against sin, uh, choosing to kill it. Romans uh, 8.13, I think uh, it is, says uh, mortify sin in the flesh, so bring it to death because the Spirit is helping you to do this uh, now. And that's going to cost you, cost you something. I... <clears throat> One thing I do, and this is an image that's kind of uh, graphic, but I'll just throw it out there. This is just a personal thing for me. You don't have to think this, but I think it is consistent with how the scriptures are written. Is For me, um, and I did this a few days ago, when I'm tempted to sin and I just almost go there, like I'm just towing the line, I want to do it, but by God's grace, for some reason, I don't. <laughs> by his working within me. What I picture in that moment, there's lots of things you can picture, what I picture in that moment as I choose the way of Christ, as I choose the way of life, as I believe he's really working in me to kill that sin, is my old self just cut to pieces by a machete on the floor. The Bible says in Colossians 3, put to death the old self. Kill it. Uh, it it's not you anymore who's alive. I mean, the, the, the related thought there is that, as Galatians 2 says, it's no, if you're a Christian, it's no longer you who live but Christ who lives within you. 
so walk away. And, but the, the point is that that imagery is to say, suffering, it hurts to choose against things that you think will bring you life, but they won't. It's a daily wrestling thing. We, we have this split personality as Christians, right? This old self st- still wants all this stuff, and we can't not do it almost, but Christ invades us and interrupts that with his love. And we're choosing him, but we're going back to this like a dog to its vomit, the Bible says. But Christ gets back in our face and says, no, you're, that's not you anymore. I'm giving you a new identity. Believe that and walk away. You're, you're not enslaved to it anymore like you used to be as a non-Christian. You had to do it as a non-Christian, but now you don't have to. All these gospel truths, these realities that we now live and breathe and find our being in are more accessible, and so we, but we walk away. But one of the things I image is just that picture of my old self dead, thinking my old self did go there all the way to hell. But my new self, by grace, is going this way because he's making me do it. And it's joyful, but man, it hurts at the same time. So killing sin, dying to self, uh, choosing to pray more than sleep, that hurts, right? Praying for other people because, you, oh man, sleep's so great, right? But maybe not catching up with your uh, favorite television show on your couch one night, which is not a bad thing, but maybe it's instead of doing that, saying, who needs help in my church right now? By prayer or by physical help. Who needs help? And, and you're saying, I'm just not going to do this for the sake of, but it really hurts. I want to do this. It's so comfortable. I want to go to sleep, but I'm going to do this. Death to self, right? Suffering. It, yeah, it's, maybe it's smaller compared to martyrdom and being persecuted for your faith, but it's still a category for suffering. The Bible teaches active suffering. Be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And here's the beautiful thing. It's not just a command. It's when you're doing it, you're demonstrating to the recipient of your service, Christ who served them on the cross and who denied himself comfort all the way to death on a cross for you. You're showing them as you're speaking it to them. Or maybe not even speaking it to them in that moment, you're showing them. But whatever the case, both are one. You're being Christ to other Christians or to non-Christians or whoever's in front of you in that moment. But it's going to cost you something. Like it cost God his life to save you and me from the pit of hell. That's active suffering. The, the other one is passive So in other words, suffering we can't control, which we've kind of talked about, how God just brings this into our life, and I'll explain examples of this in a minute. Let me just read this definitionally, though, for you. Just follow along, and we'll unpack it. God will, to varying degrees, let your life look like his son's so that it's not just your message, but your story that points people to him. Jesus didn't suffer so that you wouldn't have to. He suffered for your sins once and for all, praise be to God, but then promised that we would share in his sufferings, not as punishment, but as a means of demonstrating physically his own suffering, as if we would relive out his experience, his passion, as we are being saved ourselves. So this is suffering that's out of our control. It's just given. We can't control it. Um, It would look like uh, persecution, mistreatment, uh, we can't control those things, right? When you, when you preach the gospel to someone or express that you're a believer, if you're mistreated, misunderstood, maligned, you can't control that. That's something that's just given. Uh, that's a passive way of suffering, but it's suffering nonetheless that God is in control of, sovereign over, for the sake of telling his son's story in you. It could look like sickness. Some of you have chronic pain, but you, didn't con- you can't control that. It's just happened or uh, my, in my case, uh, migraines from almost most of my life that's uh, just been a thorn in my side. But, uh, or or misunderst- misunderstanding, or even uh, being martyred. Uh, one, one of the things that I 
also for leaders here, all of you can have this. I'm not saying this is just a leader thing, but I think it's a special thing for leaders that uh, Spencer and I, uh, <clears throat> the elders here, Peter, would say, our deacons, uh, to, to, a, to a degree, but is that um, we just have, and Paul, I'm saying this because it's biblical, Paul says in a different letter that he, there's this whole list of ways he's suffering. I've been shipwrecked, I've been stoned, I've been left for dead, I've been hated for the faith. All these things, like, one of them would, like, bring us to our knees, you know, but all these things. But at the very end of the list, you guys remember what he says? The very end, he says, above all, what really is my biggest form of suffering, what really just keeps me up at night, is my concern for the churches. And I, and I say that as someone who can resonate with that, and, and Spence, speaking for him too, that um, that's a form of suffering. And if you're a community group leader, maybe in a micro sense you experience this, but we really love you guys. And we worry about you on a daily basis. We're, we wonder where you are, or if you're safe, or if you confess something to us, if it's still a struggle, or if the enemy's knocking on your door, and if you're listening, or something like that. We, or if you're just, conf you're, you're in trouble, you're experiencing death in the family, or we worry we have anxiety over the churches like Paul did over his. We have anxiety over you, and that, that brings tears to our eyes, and it brings, um, it brings sleepless nights. It brings, it brings uh, it's just hard. It, that's part of the burden, I think, of caring, right, and, be, and being a leader, but it's suffering. Um, we can't just check out at 5 p.m., and it's just it's something that just we carry into the dinner, the dinner table and our, our wives, and they suffer a bit through it, too, because they have to... Um, bear that uh, as well. That's a form of, it's a, it's a cross-carrying thing, you know, for our wives um, as well. But worry for the church, another example just to, but that's, that's passive. It's passive because we can't control that. We just have that. It's not something we actively can choose. We can choose to serve the church, but we can't, the worry, the concern is just given as a, as a passive thing. But, so what I want to do now is, uh, this is something that will, I think, um, sort of shifting gears is that will short-circuit the theological progression of moving from suffering to joy. Like I said before, it's, it's more than possible for you guys and for me uh, to suffer actively or passively uh, and have the wrong mindset as we do it. And so to really move from suffering to doing it with joy uh, isn't automatic. And so I have a few things here that Christians can or should think these, these are the, the, the gospel mindset. Actually, the, the main answer here is just the gospel. <laughs> the thing that will allow you to move from one to the other is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we'll un I'll unpack this. But things you can be thinking about. A joyful Christian when suffering thinks, God suffered for me, too. God was rejected, too, by me and for me. I'm sharing in Christ's sufferings right now. I'm imitating him. I'm embodying the gospel. In other words, I get to show off Christ's sufferings in a special way today. I'm sharing in him. He's with me. It's a joyful thought. I am being persecuted for being a child of God, meaning I'm a child of God. If God had a plan for Christ's sufferings for good, then he certainly has a plan for mine for good, for he is in me and I am in him. His grace is sufficient. The suffering reminds me of my sin, which is a sobering thought, but worshipful if we get to Christ afterwards. There is an end to my suffering coming very soon. Or maybe the thought is, it reminds me I'm not in control of my salvation or anything else in my life. Maybe the thought is, I just deeply trust God right now. I trust him. I trust him. He knows what's best for me. In the face of deep suffering where I just don't understand, 
I still say I trust God that he's in control and he knows what's best for me. Even this suffering somehow is best for my life right now. And we, when we say that, uh, it's really difficult, full of suffering itself, but also it leads to joy. He knows what's best for me. And then finally, it's just not about me. The gospel frees us to say the latter, all of these things, but it, 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 it frees us to say the latter as well. It frees us to not think much about ourselves, but to think about the cross. See, again, the big gospel thought that you think about when you're suffering should be, Jesus did this for me, or he suffered much more uh, for me. Or you could flip all this around, too, if you want, and think about the competing thoughts that maybe some of you are wrestling with even today that don't bring joy. Uh, thoughts like, I don't deserve this suffering. Like, good luck having joy with that thought. <laughs> uh, you will be bitter the rest of your life if, if you have that thought in your mind. Uh, I'm a pretty good person. God is not in control. His grace is not sufficient for me. Uh, it is about me. Life's kind of about me. Again, all these things will make you vengeful. It'll make you angry. It'll make you have contempt. It will not lead you to the cross because you're not thinking about it. You think you deserve more than you really do. So you won't be able to receive the comfort that he gives uh, through, through his grace. Or you're just not sharing the gospel. That could be as well. You're not putting yourself in a context where people can hate you for it. And that's, again, suffering, but there's a lot of joy. Jesus says, um, find joy when you're hated for my name's sake because in the same way they persecuted the prophets in the Old Testament who were before you and me. In other words, the long line of people who are speaking truth who are hated by the world and you're in it if you partake of it. Isn't that exciting and joyful? Super painful and terrible, but amazing at the, at the same time. But in all this, you guys, uh, here, here's where we want to get. 2 Corinthians 7, in all our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. Can you say that about yourself right now? If you can't, then the only way there, the only thing I have for you is Jesus and him crucified. That's it. The only way you will get here is to think less of yourself and more of him and to see a whisper of his sufferings for you and yours and to get outside yourself. Because none of us were made to serve ourselves. Ultimately, we were made to be about other people, but ultimately God. But sin has flipped that around and we're just bitter and depressed because of it. So lastly then, what this is going to do, and I mentioned before, both these things, preaching the word of the gospel, but having a backdrop of suffering with joy creates evangelistic effectiveness. That's the last thing. Your faith has gone forth everywhere, Paul says, right? The point is, uh, when you hear from someone who not only preaches you the gospel, the God who loved you and died for your sins, but also themselves suffer joyfully in their ministry to you, uh, that's a very powerful witness. And that kind of faith actually does go everywhere. And the reason being is because it's kind of a double-edged sword. It's two things together. Christ is basically, through that type of person or church, coming at the world with two, from two different angles. One, the word, and one, suffering with joy. So one, the word, one, demonstrated uh, acts of suffering with joy. In other words, the world's hearing about Christ, but they're seeing Christ suffer before them as well. Because the world, when they experience a God who suffered joyfully for them, who wanted to suffer for them, who wasn't bitter at us, who wasn't obligated to suffer for us, 
Don't be obligated in your suffering. You're not imaging the gospel when you do that. When the world sees the opposite, they see truth. They see life. They see nothing they've ever experienced before, and they're going to want to hear more. Not all, but many will. This is the type of faith that was going forth to all of Macedonia and Achaia, the whole region, and will go forth from Hiawatha Church. If we pray to this end, if we're faithful, if we're patient, if we preach the right gospel, if we think, how can this go forth to other areas of our Twin Cities metro area and beyond? How are we going to make a dent? How are people going to hear and be intrigued by a gospel and by us suffering joyfully as a backdrop to that, as we demonstrate Christ and him crucified with, uh, with all of it? So I just want to encourage you guys to think very acutely today uh, as we close here about what this means for you. Because uh, some of you just have, maybe you have a category now for understanding why you're suffering more. Others of you, this is a joyful thing, exciting. Others of you, this is really sobering and convicting. What does this mean? How can you actively suffer? How can you receive passively the suffering that God gives into your life with contentment and joy? Even though you might not look like that, um, wh- where, can that where can that come from? And, and how can your gospel be more robust? Does it include the idea of wrath? I mean, there's lots of things here. But um, I was praying for you guys last night, uh, just right here in this room and myself, and that there would be some acute awareness about where we're not suffering well, how we're not suffering with joy, how we're not in that way embodying how Christ suffered for us with joy, how it's not consistent, and how we can be better, how we can just do better by his grace uh, in, in that regard. So we pray for us to that end, and we'll uh, wrap up here. God, thank you so much for your grace today that we have heard about, that we have seen in action. Thank you for um, the Thessalonian church who uh, were not just great evangelists, heralds, preachers, sharers of the gospel and word, but who also lived out and dramatized, whether it was active or passive, the idea, the reality that that God suffered for us. The only religion, the only worldview that can claim that uh, is Christianity, that God died for us. He served us, not the other way around. So God, thank you that you're the ultimate king, but you got your hands dirty. You, got, you, you became like one of us. You were a king of the people in that regard. You, you came to fight our battles and to push back darkness so that your enemies would become your sons and daughters. God, I pray we'd, we'd rejoice in that and that we would think every single day, even right now before we leave here, how can that be more of my message? How can I live out of that truth, that gospel, uh, with words and with deeds uh, to my church and beyond. So uh, we pray that your spirit would make Hiawatha in this neighborhood, and if you will, even beyond, as we have presence now globally with our missionaries and so forth, but that you would make us, that we be known not for being great people, but for being people who tirelessly cling to the cross as bad people, but who are loved. That, that's our legacy. That's, that's what I want for our legacy as a church 50 years from now. Not good people, Uh, but people who are loved by God and who are found by him and who cling tirelessly through affliction, cling tirelessly to the life preserver that is the cross. May that be our legacy. And if you will, God, save people through those means. Please bring in more people into the ark. Bring people in before it starts to rain, before your wrath comes in the end. Save people from themselves and their shame and their sin and their guilt and their self-deifying thoughts. Um, Save all of us from those things. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Let's stand as we respond with sweetly broken.